This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. What a joy it is to be able to sing with you the gospel of Jesus Christ every single Sunday and to hear you sing and to see your response to the truth of the gospel. It's a joy. We'll take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, as we continue to make our way through this glorious book every single week in which I'm studying this, I'm more encouraged and blessed by things I'm seeing, I think new every week. This morning we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Andrew and I have been taking Josiah, who is our five-year-old boy, through the Jesus Storybook Bible. All of our kids have been through this, and, and if you've been around here for the last few years, you have heard me talk about this book a lot. I love this book. It's one of my favorite books. I know it's a children's book, but I love it. And I love the fact that they made an adult version, which is the exact same content without the pictures, because I think they thought adults don't want to like go to the coffee shop with a picture book, called The Story of God's Love for You by Sally Lloyd-Jones. If you haven't read it, you need to. What I love is that having five children, I know bad children's Bibles, and most of them are bad. They're just sentimental and goofy, and every picture of Gabriel the archangel looks like a chubby feminine baby. It's just a weird, just the children's Bibles are so weird, you know? But this is so good because it exists to show us from the beginning to end that every single story is telling one story. Every story. There's one story of the Bible from beginning to end of God's love for his people and his longing and desire to see people come into fellowship with him, and he makes that possible through his son, Jesus Christ. There's just one big story, and what this book does is help us to see that, and I love the way it begins. Listen to these words. There's a lot of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole story of how God loves his, uh, it, tells, it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of this story is a baby. And every story whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I love that line, every story whispers his name. That's the key to understanding the Old Testament, that every single story of the Old Testament is a type, a picture pointing us to Jesus Christ. Everything is whispering his name. Sometimes it whispers quietly, sometimes a little more loudly. But the only way the Old Testament ever comes to make sense is that we see it in light of what we know as New Testament believers in the truth of Jesus Christ. But it works both ways. We really only come to understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, but it is also true we really only understand the New Testament in understanding the Old Testament. This is one story in which God is writing this beautiful love story of his desire to save us and rescue us. 
One of the reasons oftentimes the Old Testament uh, seems so difficult to understand and uh, so disjointed is because the reality is it's a puzzle without the most important piece. And it is in a sense to feel that way. We're supposed to come to the Old Testament and say something's missing because it was. It was missing Jesus Christ. But now as New Testament believers of all people, uh, we should be reading the Old Testament because we've got the peace. We, we have that missing piece and everything seems to fit together. Now I'm gonna tell you something that might be a little shocking to you because I know you and I know that you're next level people. You're not normal Bible believing. I'm getting a lot of nods over here. You're not the normal church crowd, all right? You're, you're a different breed of people, right? You're, you're just a higher level of people, all right? There are some people out there, good people. They seem to love Jesus and they read the Bible and they go to church. But when they read through the Old Testament, they're not, be prepared for this, some of them skim or even skip Leviticus. This is true. There's people out there that do this. I know you wouldn't do it. There are people out there who admit to me they do this. They just go right through Leviticus. And I don't get it because it doesn't take very long to get into chapters 13 and 14 when you get two, two entire chapters of great detail on how to deal with leprous sores. That's good stuff, people. It's disgusting. But it's, that's, my D group is memorizing this right now. I just think my guys need to know how to deal with leprous sores in case they ever need to know that. Now, I get it. I, I, I do understand why we make it through a few chapters of Leviticus and start to maybe go a little bit quicker than we normally would. But if we do that, we might miss Leviticus 16. And if we miss Leviticus 16, we are not really going to understand the gospel. We certainly won't understand Hebrews chapter 5. Because it is there, the celebration, the annual celebration, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. When the high priest, who was Aaron, would go into the presence of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. And why did that matter? He was the only one that could go into the presence of God. And that mattered because of what we say often here. Listen, because everything flows from the presence of God. Everything you need comes from God. Everything flows from the presence of God. Everything your heart longs for, it's found in one place in the presence of God. And Aaron was the only one that could go there. And so he was chosen by God to go and to sacrifice for the sins of the people once a year. And the first thing he would do is he would sacrifice a bull for his own sins and the sins of his family. He himself needed to be right before entering into the presence of God. And the next thing he would do is he would take two goats. The first goat he would slaughter and he would take the blood from that goat. He would go into the Holy of Holies where there was what was called the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle the blood of that goat on the mercy seat, giving us a picture of substitutionary death, that animal killed in our place. Because God does not just ignore sin. He doesn't look past sin. Every sin that has ever been committed, committed has to be paid for. You can pay for it or he'll pay for it. And so he makes a substitute for the sins of the people. But there was a second goat. What happened to that second goat is that goat was brought before the people and Aaron would lay his hands upon that goat and confess the sins of the people. And listen, then he would let it go into the wilderness and all of the people would watch as that goat ran off with all of the sins of the people. 
not only symbolizing that something has been killed to pay for our sins, but that our sins have gone. They have been removed from us and we see them no longer. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it shows us the holiness of God, that God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. It has to be dealt with, but it shows us the grace of God who has made a way for sins to be dealt with because God knows that we were created for his presence. He wants us in his presence. So all of this stuff that we see is God just making a way for us. And it shows us the beauty of substitutionary atonement. Something, someone dying in our place, bearing our sins so we can be right with God. And all of that, it's a whisper. Church, it's a whisper. It's whispering Jesus Christ to us. It is showing us that a greater priest would come. There would someday be a once and for all sacrifice who himself would die for the sins of his people and our sins would be placed upon him and we could receive his righteousness pointing us to the holiness of God we see in the death of Jesus who demands sins be paid for. The grace of God we see in Jesus who is providing a way and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus who dies on our behalf. And that is in reality the point of Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. That Jesus is our great high priest. A phrase that would be meaningless to us if we did not understand the significance of the high priest in the Old Testament. Uh, I think many of us read Hebrews 4 and 5 and we go, oh great, Jesus is a high priest. But to those who were immersed in the Old Testament who were reading this originally, they came to see this and thought, yes, Jesus is in fact the promised great high priest. And they understood that. And we looked at it last time, uh, two weeks ago, when it talks about in chapter four, verses 14, when it introduces this idea that we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, meaning he died and was buried and rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's gone through the heavens and he's set down at the right hand of the Father where he is now our high priest. And then the end of chapter four gives us two commands. So if Jesus is our high priest, what we should do is hold fast to our confidence. Don't let go of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep believing that Jesus is the way. And then... Draw near to Jesus. If he's the high priest, then hold on to him because there's no other way but Jesus and get close to him because he sympathizes with your weakness and he is there to help you every moment of the day. Chapter five continues that idea of Jesus as the high priest, but there's something different about this text. Different, really different from what we've seen in the last few weeks in chapters two, three, and four, and that is that there is no command in this text. There's no command. I kept reading, looking for the command, and what I realized is the desire was still the same to motivate you to hold on to Jesus, but to do so in a bit of a different way. To hold up Jesus as the source as the one who is sufficient for everything that you need to say to broken, hurting, suffering people who are tempted to give up on the Lord, who might be a little disappointed with life, who don't really know where to take their sin and addiction and dysfunction, and to say to them, Jesus is the source. 
and to motivate them to obedience, not by commanding them to obey, but simply by showing them the glory of Jesus Christ. So if you're there in Hebrews 5, say amen. It says this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now pause there, that's the whisper, okay? That's Leviticus 16, that's whispering to us about Jesus. But here is the reality of which it was whispering. Verse five, so also Christ. Did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said of him, you're my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this text is divided up in both the whisper and the reality. But in order for us to understand the reality, we have to understand the whisper. So it begins in verses one through four, showing us this whisper of the Old Testament. It talks to us about Aaron, the high priest, and gives us two characteristics about Aaron. Now, we could talk all day about Aaron, uh, about his robe and the symbolism of his robe and about the sacrificial system. There is a lot to be said, but right here, the author just wants us to know two characteristics of Aaron, the high priest. The first is that he was appointed by God. It says every high priest was chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men, and verse four, called by God. Meaning this wasn't something that someone decided to do. They didn't have a spiritual gifts test. And coming out of that test was an option to be a butcher, someone who just loves to slaughter animals. Or if you wanted to take that same gifting and make it a little more spiritual, you could be a high priest and make your parents so proud that you could still use those butchering gifts but do it at the church. That's what you ought to do, son. No, this wasn't something you just decided to do. It it checks all the boxes. I love butchering animals and I love people. No, this was something you were appointed to do. God called and chose and appointed Aaron to be a high priest. And his role, look at at the end of verse one, very important, was to act on behalf of men in relation to God. There's the gospel in that phrase because that phrase tells you that God wants you, that God loves you, that God knows that he created you and you will only find life in relationship to him. And because of that, he has appointed someone to work on your behalf to make a way for you to get to him. 
There has to be a mediator. Listen, you have to get to God. Everything is there. You have to get to God. Do you know the worst thing about hell is not the fire, which is real. It is not the darkness, which is real. It is not just the eternity of those things, which is real. The worst thing about heaven is all of the goodness of the presence of God is not there. It is an eternity void of the goodness of God. That's hell. You know what hell on earth is? Life without God. The enemy will lie to you that a real miserable life is life in submission to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, hell is life without God. God knows that. And so right here, he has appointed someone to act on behalf of you in order to help you get back to God, to mediate between people and God. He was appointed by God, showing us God's heart for you, his desire to bring you in. But the second characteristic is that this high priest also had solidarity with people, appointed by God and solidarity with people. Aaron was not a special angelic being. He was a guy, he was a dude, he was a man. He was just chosen, look, from among men. Well, why? Because... He needed to deal with people and getting them to God. And in order for him to do that, he under understand people. Look at verse two. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That's us, ignorant and wayward. Ignorant, we don't know what to do. Wayward, even if we did, we probably wouldn't do it. Okay, that's all of us. This morning, I was thinking about a situation in which I needed wisdom. And I just thought about my own ignorance and my own inability to Figure out a situation without the help of God because every one of us, including myself here, is just ignorant and wayward. That's us in this life. But the beauty thing, beautiful thing about Aaron is that he also was beset with weakness. Do you see that at the end of verse two? He was beset with weakness. And so he knew how to deal with us and he could deal gently with us. He wasn't saying, what an idiot. I can't believe you did that because he had also done that. And he understood he was... One of the people says he can deal gently because he himself is beset with weakness. When I was a kid, my parents used to attend these conferences every year with this well-known evangelist that used to travel and preach. He focused primarily upon marriage and family. I hated when my parents went to these. They usually dragged me along and I didn't like going either. I had these big books and all of these charts to tell you how to raise kids. And every time my parents came home from one of those, they had a new something for me. All, some, new, some new principle about how to raise me. I remember one time they came home and had this new phrase they had just learned. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I'm not going to tell you twice anymore. Now, that's a really, really good parenting principle, but I, I hated it. That was just stupid. But I remember my mom going to that conference, come back, she would say that over and over and over again. And I remember, you're going to think I'm kidding. I remember as a kid, when I found out that the guy who was teaching this wasn't even married. No kids. And my parents were paying money to get principles I hated to tell them how to raise me. Never even had a kid. 
as I'm talking about it, I think I still got some stuff I need to work out. I, I didn't realize as I was talking how much I really am mad about this. Now, let me, one of the things I've learned as I've gotten a little bit older, pastors have to talk about stuff they've never experienced. I've never slaughtered a goat, but I just told you about it. And there's a bunch of other stuff in here I've never experienced. And at some point I'm going to talk to you about. So I get that, but I just, you know, you just kind of wish the guy knew what it was like to come home to a wife and kids and to go on vacation and drive 10 hours in a minivan with kids. You just want him to know that before he tells you how to act in the minivan with kids. He doesn't know what it's like. It's great. It's great. It's unbelievable. I remember a few weeks ago, I uh, just mentioned by application my own struggle with worry. It's a, it's a big one for me. I, I, I struggle with this a lot. I think about it a lot. I battle it a lot. And uh, it was interesting to me after I mentioned that, it really was just, it fit with the text and it was application. Right after the first service, a man came up to me and said, thank you for sharing that. I needed to hear that. I got some emails and some calls that week of people saying, thank you for telling us. And I think it's just because it's good every once in a while for you to know I'm just a guy trying to learn how to follow Jesus. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out how to be a husband and I'm trying to figure out how to be a father and I'm trying to figure out how to be morally pure and I'm just, I'm just walking with Jesus and I don't know what you might've thought of me before I said that, but I'm just a guy trying to learn how to walk with Jesus and working at it and helping us grow together in our walk with Jesus and there's just something about knowing that someone understands and knows. And this is just the beauty of Aaron. We say, man, this, we loved Aaron because, man, Aaron was one of us. He, he knew what it was like to be us. He was called by God to work on behalf of men to get people to God. And he understood what it was like to live in this broken world like one of us. So that's the, that's the whisper. And then it transitions to the reality with three beautiful words. So you say, why is it that it only told us two things about Aaron? Because it wants us to understand those two things about Christ. Look at those first three words of verse five, underline them. So also Christ. So also Christ. Christ, we already know, is our great high priest. We know that from chapter four, verse 14. So also Christ, what does that mean? Well, so also Christ appointed by God and has solidarity with us. Appointed by God. He did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was, here it is, the same word used of Aaron, appointed by him who said to him, and then uh, quotes two Old Testament texts, both whispering his name, Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And if that verse concerns you, go back to my second sermon on the book of Hebrews and you'll see an explanation of that. But the point is, is that there had always been a promise that a son of David was going to come and he was going to be like David, a king. He was going to be begotten, meaning he was going to be born in the flesh. And that whisper was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then it quotes Psalm 100 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, meaning that this promised son of David, born of the flesh, coming as a king, was going to be in the lineage of Melchizedek. Jesus appointed as a high priest. I'm not going to spend much time on Melchizedek because we get a whole chapter on him in chapter 7. 
He is a, a bit of a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. He's mentioned in Genesis 14, in which he is a contemporary of Moses and he blesses Moses. Moses honors him by paying a tenth of all that he has to him. And we know this about him. We know that he is a priest and a king of Salem. He's both a priest and a king. And then David uses Melchizedek as an example in Psalm 100, the only other time he's mentioned in the Old Testament, to show us that someday there's going to be someone coming like Melchizedek from his line who will also be a priest and a king like Melchizedek. So all of a sudden we start to understand that this mysterious figure in the Old Testament was a whisper. He was there to whisper to us. When they were longing for a savior, there was a whisper. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And he's gonna be a king, a son of David, and he's gonna be a priest like Melchizedek. Quotes these two Old Testament passages to remind us that God, that God appointed Jesus to come and establish his kingdom and to rescue us and like Aaron to mediate for us, to work on our behalf to get us to God. But so also Christ, not only appointed by God, but had solidarity with people. Jesus never sinned. Let's be very clear about that. But Jesus can sympathize with our weakness because he knows what it's like to live in the flesh. We talked about that in chapter four, when it says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So we might say, well, yeah, we had Aaron. He understood us, but Jesus doesn't understand us. No, he, he does. Because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. I said two weeks ago when I preached on this text, one of the greatest lies of the enemy is when the enemy says that no one understands you. And you won't share your struggles or hurts because no one understands. No one's ever been through that. No, it's a lie. It's a lie. We understand and Jesus understands. Jesus was embarrassed and shamed and misunderstood and falsely accused. He was rejected and lonely and tortured and killed. He lost loved ones. He had friends betray him. Jesus knows these things. And he feels your pain. He feels your struggle. Jesus went for 40 days to be tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. And then at the end of the 40 days, it says that Satan left and was going to come back at an opportune time. That's not the only time Jesus was tempted that way. Throughout his ministry and life, tempted by Satan, he understands what it's like. He feels that pain and his heart is drawn to us, which is really good news that he understands what it's like to live in this broken world filled with broken people. And then just to remind us of that, look at what it does in verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, not an angelic being, real flesh and blood, born of a woman. Jesus, listen, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now look here, this is what's incredible about this moment. So it's reminding us of the humanity of Jesus and his understanding of us, the end of chapter four. And then the author of Hebrews wants us to feel this a little deeper. So he takes us by the hand and he leads us to the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was the night he was betrayed, where he sweat drops of blood. And it says, that you know what Jesus did there? He made prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. If you ever had loud cries and tears, let me tell you something, Jesus understands. 
loud cries and tears. And what did he do there? Well, he asked the one, his father, who was able to save him from death. (laughs) You see, we have this idea that what Jesus was doing in Gethsemane was, was wanting to not go to the cross because of the physical pain. And Jesus knew crucifixion. He understood this. And so he was fully aware of all of the physical suffering beyond anything we could ever experience. The nails in his hands and feet. He knew what was awaiting him, but that wasn't what made him have such agony in the garden. It was the awareness that when he hung on that cross, all of your sin and all of your guilt and all of your shame at one moment was gonna be placed upon Jesus and the father was gonna turn his face away. And Jesus would experience hell because the presence of the father would be removed, which is exactly what hell is. Can we think about this just for a minute? Think about the weight of your sin. Don't you hate sin? Don't you hate that besetting sin, that addiction, the guilt, the shame? How many things do I wish I wouldn't have done when I was younger because they're still with me today? Do you, do you, you know that? Imagine yours and everybody else's in this room. And the heaviness of that. Now imagine that of the whole world and all of that place upon Jesus in one moment. The agony of the cross was the agony in which he experienced the weight of your sin and experienced the hell that you deserved. And he cried and he wept and the gospel of Mark tells us that in the garden he was deeply distressed and his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. If you've ever been overwhelmed with sorrow, Jesus understands. He cried because not his sins, but our sins was gonna be, were gonna be laid upon him. But yet he endured the cross, Hebrews 12. He despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. He was obedient to the call of God in his life. He says he was able to save him from death and he was heard. Jesus was heard because of his reverence, because of his purity and his holiness. He was heard and he was saved from death after his death, as you will be if you know the Lord. Look at verse eight. I saw something here this week I've never seen before. We're talking about Jesus' solidarity with people. He understands this. Look at this verse. This is really interesting. Although he was a son, meaning we just established Jesus is the son of God, eternally existing, born in the flesh. Although he was a son, listen, he learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience. He grew in wisdom and stature with God and man. In other words, Jesus learned how to walk with the father. He learned how to pray. He learned how to read and spend time with God. He learned how to fight temptation. He learned how to grow. We know this. We know that he grew, but it's telling us here, this idea of he learned obedience really talks about this this process or this pathway of growing in his relationship with the father. So Jesus knows what it's like to grow in your relationship with the father. But here's the part of this verse I didn't like. It's like my parents going to that conference and getting a principal. This is not what I wanted. How did, he, how did he learn obedience through what he suffered? And I just wanted like, I just want a period right there. He learned obedience, period. Listen, the, the pathway that Jesus walked is the pathway that everyone walks when they come to follow Jesus. Do you want to follow me? 
well then come and walk with me. And that goes to the cross and through the suffering and to the resurrection. But the reality is, is the means by which God teaches us obedience is mostly through the suffering. And I don't know where we have gotten this mostly from the South is where we've gotten this demonic idea that if you come to Jesus, there is no more suffering. Listen, the tears and loud cries will be with us until we get there. And the reason heaven is so glorious is because we've cried down here and we don't cry up there. So like we're so tired of this life, we can't wait to get with Jesus. But this is, this is the reality of our life. And Jesus, through his suffering, learned obedience. And so it is that God is teaching you. He has not abandoned you in those difficult times. He has not abandoned you in that suffering. You know what he's doing? He is drawing you in to his presence. And he's answering your prayer when you said, Lord, teach me how to follow you. You might have prayed that. Lord says, okay, I want to. And it's gonna be glorious, painful, but so good. Look at verse nine. And being made perfect, meaning he completely fulfilled the law. And everything is, being, is leading up to four words here. He became, here it is, the, if you're underlining anything, this is it, source of eternal salvation. That's it. Everything's leading up to that phrase. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. I prayed that this morning, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. Sometimes you're reading scripture and one word just captures you. For me this week, it was the word source. Listen to this, I've titled this message, Jesus, our source. What does that mean by source? Well, that's where we get everything that we need. He's the source, everything is coming from him. This is why Jesus stands up in John 7, I'm looking at our college students over here and I'm just, I'm just thinking about it. If there's any message I could give to our college students, it's John 7, when Jesus comes out and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because everyone's thirsty. Come to me and drink and you'll be satisfied and rivers of living water are gonna flow through you. Not only will you be satisfied, but others will be satisfied through you. Why? Because Jesus is the source and there's no command here. It's not telling us to do anything. It's just making this one very clear statement. Jesus is the source of everything. Like you gotta have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. He is the source. You say, well, how do I gain eternal life? Jesus. Uh, how do I gain victory? Jesus. It's all Jesus. He's the source of eternal salvation. Look at what it says in the next four words, to all who obey. You know, the reason I want you to bring your Bibles is because if you don't bring your Bibles, you might not realize that's there. But I want you to see, it says, he's the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. Now, many would be confused by that, but you won't because you've heard me the last few weeks as we've talked about the reality that saving faith is a faith that is always demonstrated in action. This is Hebrews 10 and 11. My, the righteous ones walk by faith. And then Hebrews 11 shows all these examples. And it's not just examples of people who believed, it's people who believed and walked in that belief. That's saving faith. So because he's already addressed that, he's not worried that someone's gonna think, well, listen, I've gotta obey to, to know Jesus. He's not worried about that. He's not, he's not concerned that they're gonna misunderstand. He just says it. If you're trusting Jesus, he's giving you a heart to obey. And the way you know you're trusting Jesus is because you're obeying Jesus. 
so he can say to all who obey, to all who have saving faith, Jesus is your source of eternal salvation. And there's no one else you ever need but Jesus. He's everything you're ever gonna need, not only for eternity, but for right now. So the point is that, that, that Aaron was whispering and Melchizedek was whispering and in Psalm 2 and Psalm 100, David was whispering and the whole Old Testament is whispering. All of it was shadows and types and pictures, but you, church, listen, you have the reality. Jesus Christ. You know the reason that Hebrews 2.3 can say, how are you gonna escape if you neglect such a great salvation is because there's no more whispers you know the reality of Jesus Christ. So how do, you, how do you escape judgment if you neglect what is so clearly presented to you today, not simply that Jesus will get you to heaven, but that Jesus is the source of everything right now? Remind, remind you of the context. The people are suffering. They're tempted to give up on Jesus. They're thinking about drifting away. And he simply says to them, listen, I know it's hard and I know life is difficult, but just keep looking to Jesus. He is the source of what, whatever it blank. He's the source of what you need, the encouragement in life or death. What's your source? Where are you getting, where are you getting what you need? How are you feeding your soul? How are you quenching your thirst? What's your source? Doug Nix and I on Thursday went uh, and made a visit to a, precious saint in our church, which most of my pastoral ministry has been sitting right on that second or third row on the end seat. And um, it reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, my outer body is wasting away, but my inner man is being renewed day by day. Her outer body is wasting away, but she is stronger than ever in spirit. And I was so encouraged. And I said, how are you doing? She just got some really bad news. And I said, how are you doing? She looked at me and she goes, it's a win-win. She's not, she's good. Like I was kind of coming with the, I want to be real sensitive because she's, she's fine. Like I, you know, I had like all the pity in me that I could muster up and like, I, no, I'm good. It's a, it's a win-win. If I, if I live, that's great. If I die, it's great. Where do you get that? You get it from Jesus, the source of eternal salvation. That's where you get that. She knows Jesus. close with this. It just reminded me this week of the Heidelberg Catechism in in 1563. German church was trying to find a way to help children see the distinction between the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and help them to be able to discern the differences. And so they taught him a catechism. And what a catechism does is it asks a question and then the child answers the question. Uh, I don't I can't think of a time in which we've needed this more than now. In our current generation, do our children need to discern between what's right and wrong? And this is why in our children's curriculum on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, we had catechism questions. But they would ask a question and the kid would respond. So here's the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, the first one. So an adult would ask the question, the child would respond. Here's the question. What's the only comfort in life and death? What's the only comfort in life and death? Here's how the child would answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You know why all of this theology in Hebrews? You know why we go back and look at all of the the whispers? All of the theology exists to just tell you this. Jesus is the source. And God has made a way for you to get back into his presence where there is everything that you need every moment of the day, but you only find it when you keep drinking from Jesus. So church, keep drinking from Jesus. Nowhere else, Jesus. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.